Okay, and welcome to episode five of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I've got a, a, a great one for you. I've got professors Kevin Tipton and Stu Phillips on the, uh, the show today, and we're going to talk about protein. Now, protein, of course, is a huge subject, and these guys um, are, are, of, are, of course, are, of course, a subject. We talk for hours and hours. In fact, I've had the uh, the honour and pleasure to sit through quite a few lectures with these guys, and I know that we could go on forever. So this this podcast will not do justice to the topic of protein, so you'll have to allow for that. Um, but um, I just wanted to say hi, Kevin, and hi, Stu. Howdy. How you doing? Yeah. So uh, I'm really grateful to have you guys uh, on this podcast. Um, I, I know it's a difficult thing to get into you know such a, a big topic as protein in sort of 30 40 minutes and i know that um i haven't just got one of you i've got two of you so we're, we're going for the uh, the superpower here um but let, let's just kick it off initially um kevin why, why don't you give us just a quick introduction um as to you know what protein um is and and by this i mean sort of the context of of you know not just sort of the biochemistry of protein but what why is protein an important topic in the realms of health and fitness okay uh the biochemistry of it is of course that the protein is a a chain of uh, uh peptides so um you know there's amino acids put together to make make a protein and there's the the different levels of structure etc um, as far as nutrition goes, of course, it's a it's a an essential nutrient. Um, there are a great deal of uh, uh, tissues in the body, of course, that are are based on protein. In fact, all, almost all. And uh, you know, the all of your phenotypic uh, adaptations, everything that the way you look, the way uh, you talk, etc., are all based on the amount and activity of various proteins in, in the body. And then, of course, there are, uh, as far as protein nutrition goes, uh, protein also provides the amino acids for other um, compounds in the body that are based on on nitrogen and and amino acids. Yeah, excellent. So, I mean, obviously, what we're you know knowing at this point is that protein isn't just skeletal muscle, but Stu, ske skeletal muscle is an important tissue, um, of course, and, but, but I mean, why, what, you know, why should we be thinking about protein, um, particularly with relevance to skeletal muscle tissue? Why, why, why is that even important? Well, I mean, I think be beyond its obvious role in, in locomotion and, and getting around and, you know, athletic performance, skeletal muscle, from a health perspective, it, it's the largest site of post-meal glucose disposal. So um, the less of it you have in terms of a, a sink, if you like, for glucose, and uh, the less metabolically active your muscle is, then the higher your risk for type 2 diabetes and um, all kinds of dysregulation of glucose. Uh, aside from that, though, if you boil down your resting energy expenditure or metabolic rate, however you want to uh, phrase it, which is probably for most people the largest single contributor to energy expenditure in a day, then it's really a function of lean mass, so fat and bone-free mass. And when you really boil it down to the two tissues that contribute to that, it's your liver, which is highly metabolically active, but obviously very small, 
uh, and your skeletal muscle, which is not as metabolically active, but can be, obviously, if you're active, uh, but you just have so much of it that it uh, tends to dominate the equation. And because muscle mass declines, obviously, as we get older or we can increase it, then we can you know, have a pretty substantial influence over things like our resting energy expenditure. So I think from those two perspectives, beyond just you know, it makes you stronger, allows you to run faster, et cetera, are, are two things that I always say they're pretty important in terms of skeletal muscle. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point because, of course, when people start thinking about muscle or muscle protein, they automatically start to think about being muscular or bodybuilding or even athletes. But, of course, um, and, and, and I like to sort of point out to both my clients and my students, when we talk about performance nutrition, it, it, it's really about every human being, where, where, wherever you are on that scale of, of human performance, whether it's at the top end of, of trying to you know, run as fast as you can or lift as much as you can, uh, all the way down to the sort of everyday person who just wants to function properly. And of course, if we're talking about, um, and during the course of this podcast, hopefully we're going to get into some juicy topics like muscle protein synthesis and um, you know, feed spacing and, and uh, anabolism and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, this is relevant to everyone, whether we're talking about growing uh, children, adolescents, uh, just maintaining healthy bodies and fatigue, uh, so, uh, sorry, dealing with fatigue, prevention of diseases, uh, longevity in general, the whole, just the basic functionality of every human being is obviously influenced by uh, uh, protein uh, and muscle protein synthesis. So, Kevin, um, I mean, tell us a little bit more than about uh, protein and its relationship to um, sort of health generally, uh, just as a starting point. Well, I think Stu sort of touched on it uh, as a beginning as far as, you know, basal metabolic rate and insulin sensitivity. There are also a, a number of probably... Uh, less appreciated roles. And, and um, you know, Bob Wolf wrote a great paper in 2006 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that kind of kind of went through some of these. And, and, you know, again, it's relation to obesity in the, in the two roles that Stu was mentioning as, you know, energy expenditure and insulin sensitivity. Um, your, your survival rate from cancer is much higher if you have more skeletal muscle, for example. If you go into surgery, um, the more muscle you have, the better the better chance you have to, to for a successful outcome and and to heal more quickly with skeletal mu with more uh, skeletal muscle. So there's very clearly an association of of skeletal muscle to to health, and it's not only how much you have, but also how and, and Stu mentioned this earlier, how much you use it. Um, so for example, a, a lot of people who are obese, uh, you know, have a, a fair bit of skeletal muscle because it takes it takes a bit of effort to move around all that body fat and and you know there is quite a bit of evidence that just moving that skeletal muscle even if you're obese it will hold off or even even um, uh, you know get rid of some of the symptoms of metabolic syndrome that come with obesity so so skeletal muscle is an incredibly important uh, tissue in the body and and it should be maintained and used yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out because, of course, just in general society, you only have to pick up magazines or papers or just have to have general conversations with people. And, of course, the, the, the sort of the mindset is on, well, being fat 
is unhealthy. Um, we never really think about being sort of under-muscled or having a lack of, lack of muscle mass. And in fact, um, I mean, guys, is it, is it fair to think maybe that it's probably better to have adequate muscle but maybe a little bit excess body fat than having someone who's super lean but having inadequate muscle mass? No question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'd agree with that sentiment. I mean, I think that the, um, the confluence of two things uh, that you're seeing these days as well is as older people who are overweight or, or, or obese um, begin to lose their muscle mass because they don't do what Kevin was saying, which is move around, then you've got sarcopenia, so the loss of muscle mass with age and obesity, so whatever you want to call it, sarcobesity or sarcopenic obesity, but it, really those people, are that's the double-edged sword, right? Not only are you at high risk for all kinds of metabolic disorders, but you also can't um, you know, physically move around and then you're at higher risk for, you know, and it becomes a vicious circle, so uh, I think too uh, that I agree with you, uh, Laurent. That the um, the really the phenotype or the body shape that you would like to have is a little bit more muscle. And um, okay, if there's more fat, then I'd accept that that's probably a lot healthier than having obviously uh, less muscle. Yeah, yeah, no, I and and there there is epidemiological data to support to support that that uh, if people who are on the very the lower uh, quintile for muscle, the very lowest amount of muscle, are are their mortality and morbidity rates are much higher than people who are sort of in that have a little bit of muscle but also a little bit of body fat. You know, so sort of the 25, 30, even up into the low 30s in BMI, you're going to be better off if you have muscle and especially if you use it than if you're way down in the below 20s in the BMI and you don't have muscle and you don't do anything. So it's, I think it's, it, at least from an epidemiological standpoint, it's pretty clear. Yeah, no, excellent. So, you, you know, we've obviously established that, that muscle is important, and that's an area, of course, we could go on forever clinically as well as from a performance perspective. But I think it's sort of, you know, one's mind starts to go down the path of, well, okay, so how are we going to get extra muscle, which, of course, is a huge topic in itself. But, um, I mean, you hear people obviously thinking, well, I'm just going to eat more protein uh, and that way I'm just going to get more muscle on me. I mean, you know, I mean, why is that an incorrect thought process, Stu? Uh, well, I think the, the way our body functions, I mean, we, the, we have to remember that, um, you know, as Kevin said right at the top, is we don't have a lot of requirements for other macronutrients. So we have a very small requirement, for example, for fat, uh, and we probably have, you know, next to nothing in terms of an absolute requirement for carbohydrate. That we'll we'll skip over that argument for now. But <laughs> yeah. but but we do we do have a requirement for protein. In other words, on a on a daily basis, you know, we're breaking down proteins in our body, and I mean everywhere, you know, muscles, bones, skin, liver, blood, you know, you name it. Um, and we lose some of the amino acids, and specific, more specifically, we lose the nitrogen in the form of urea. And every organism, whether you're a bird, a fish, a reptile, a mammal, it doesn't really matter. You have to have a mechanism of getting rid of nitrogen. So, you know, fundamentally, it, it's important to remember that you have no extra store of protein. So you can't sort of tuck it away as fat or you can't store it as muscle glycogen like you can with carbohydrates and fat so you have to keep consuming it so 
you know, keep pushing protein into a system through ingestion and, and you simply, you get to a point where your body says, well, I'm trying to use it as fast as I can, but you can't just stock it away. So your muscles don't expand to sort of store, if you like, that extra protein. Now, you know, there is some evidence that you, if you overeat, if you overconsume calories and more of those calories come from protein, that you begin to deposit uh, a little bit of the extra weight as muscle. But, you know, you're also gaining fat at the same time. And, you know, whether you whether that's a desired outcome, I know for some athletes, the sort of bulking up type thing is, uh, is um, you know, required. But most of them do it in combination with exercise. But simply just consuming more protein is, uh, it, it, it's impossible to lay down more muscle mass than you actually have. Sure. Yeah, and of course, that's a, uh... I mean, it's a big topic now, particularly amongst those that are more into the bodybuilding sort of area. I, I know um, I have quite a few clients in that field who spend immense amounts of time and money per day just inhaling every form of protein known to man. And of course, that isn't necessarily a good idea. Um, but you know, one argument you'll constantly hear back from people is, well, you can eat as much protein as you like because it increases the thermic effect of feeding. It's the most satiating of protein, but I mean, too much is still too much, though, isn't it? Well, I, I think it comes back to you know, I mean, you've got to put something into the machine if you like, you've got to fuel the machine, and so a lot of people then by default choose protein. I just think that they have to realize beyond a certain point that it, it's serving no useful purpose from a you know, stimulation of protein synthesis, whether it's at the muscle level or any level. And all you're doing is contributing to urea formation. And I, and I think that there is a break point beyond which more protein and therefore more nitrogen in the system really becomes a, a, a deleterious thing. And, um, you know, our body upregulates all of the enzymatic machinery to get rid of nitrogen. So you put yourself in a situation when you begin to eat high amounts of protein where you have to continue to keep doing that to sort of sustain this really high flux of, uh, of protein going in and out of the body. So, you know, if that's the situation you want to lock yourself into, then by all means. But once you start doing it, then, boy, you know, you better keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that, um, so there's two, two sort of areas that I want to go to from here, one of which obviously people will be thinking, okay, well, then how much? protein which will answer in the second part of this question but um also you know we don't want people necessarily to panic about oh my god i'm having too much protein and i've heard that you know that's going to cause my kidneys to shut down or you know it's dangerous to uh to overconsume protein i know some of my younger athletes sometimes the parents can start to freak out a little bit because they've read somewhere that protein you know increased protein intake is as bad as smoking like that paper article um that we heard recently so perhaps um uh, kevin could you just quickly uh, uh allay our fears about the dangers of excess protein for normal healthy people yeah i i i don't think that there's a whole lot of evidence for that uh the, when i was starting out in nutrition of course that was the the mantra of every dietitian and and Many for many it still is that you just you have to be careful. You're going to shut your kidneys down. You're going to tear yourself up. Your bones are going to disintegrate uh, when you're eating high amounts of protein. And a lot of those people were even considering sort of, you know, one and a half to two grams per kilo as as the high amounts that were going to hurt you. But um, 
there's no real evidence for that. I, Stu has actually written this very nicely a couple of times in some papers I've seen. And uh, in healthy people, with with the the problem would be in, with an underlying kidney disease that you don't know you have. That's where someone could get in trouble. But as long as their kidneys are are, are fine, and especially as long as they're eating fruits and vegetables in in their diet on a regular basis. There's really no, I don't think there's any reason for concern up to a point of reasonable reasonable intake to, to where, as Stu was saying, it's silly to go above anyway. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have anything to add to that, Stu? I agree with Kevin. I mean, I, I think that the main thing is, um, you know, as Kevin says, I've sort of uh, raged against these, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but let's just call them myths that, you know, first of all, the protein will cause your kidneys to fail. And, and, and in fact, if you go to the WHO and even the Institute of Medicine DRIs, um, they categorically disagree with that statement. Uh, you know, as Kevin pointed out, if you, if you have poor kidney function, then high protein is not going to help you. And that's where the argument comes from. It's sort of a reverse argument, you know, most dietitians have spent time in a, in a renal ward, and because people's kidneys are failing and they're on a low-protein diet, the assumption, and it's an incorrect one, of course, is that, therefore, protein caused their kidneys to fail. And, and that's categorically incorrect. So it's just flawed logic. Um, and the whole protein and bone thing, without you know belaboring it, I think Kevin um, said it right, is that when athletes talk about protein, all that I tell them to do and to make sure is they're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables because the, if you like, counteract the counteracting effect of those to uh, to protein is is quite substantial. And um, you know that's that's the sort of argument. I, I think in the end, you know, how much is too much? Well, you know, we can sort of come up with numbers, but it's a bit of hand waving. And and I think that they're you know, practically speaking, unless you want to eat 100% protein all the time. And, and I know some people who are sort of in that that realm. Uh, that's just not how I, I would I would structure my diet. But um, I, I don't see the, the downside. I'm kind of waiting for the shoe to drop on this. And, of course, the study you mentioned about smoking, well, I think that's been roundly dismissed by uh, experts in the area. So Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, um, I've heard uh, sort of a, a joint lecture between you and Craig Sale uh, on topics of nutrition. Of course, Craig uh, gave an excellent lecture on protein and bone and covered that very topic going into things like potential renal acid load and, you know, the uh, the buffers provided by uh, certain dairy products, of course, and, of course, the, you know, the, the, the alkaline substances, if you like, that come from veg. And if we're eating... Um, optimal amounts of vegetables, then it would pretty much solve the problem. But Craig's actually going to be on this podcast in a couple of weeks, so um, I'll, I'll have him tackle that one for for those that are wanting more on that. So let's let's move then into uh, the second part of that point, which was um, Stu. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about um, you know eating enough protein and potentially not eating uh, over and above that. So what what actually would the optimal amount of protein be and of course i know there's different contexts here but if we look at sort of active people perhaps and then maybe also bring that up to uh, athletes yeah i i mean i think that uh, i don't think that too many people would disagree you can probably consume the rda of about 0.8 grams of protein per kilo per day and you'll be fine you know you, you're not gonna uh, you know die you're not gonna wither away 
but the, the, the main question is not about requirements and a minimal intake, and that's how the RDA is defined. It's the minimal intake um, required to basically offset states of deficiency or, you know, paraphrasing there. But it's an optimal intake. And so most of what we've tried to work out is to look and see whether we can't frame this on more of a, say, a per meal basis. And when you look at it from that perspective and stimulation of protein synthesis, et cetera, um, it really nets out to about uh, 0.3 grams of protein uh, per kilogram per meal. And so that takes into account a variety of different body shapes, body sizes, I think, uh, goals and that sort of thing. And, you know, so multiply that by about, uh, you know, maybe four or, you know, five meals a day, whatever you want to do. And I think you're looking at somewhere about, you know, one and a half to maybe at the most uh, two grams of protein per kilo. And, and that's, you know, I, and I don't disagree that you can't eat more than that, but of course you can. But the main point is, is that intakes beyond that level are certainly not driving muscle growth or, or anything other than just, you know, filling you up and uh, providing um, satiety and, and, and that sort of thing. So that, yeah. that's kind of where I sit on that. Yeah, no, abs uh, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, context is, of course, key to much of these discussions. And obviously, the more active you are or if you're, I mean, there's a big difference between someone who's just starting out on a weight training program than someone who's been training for 20 years and, you know, their, their uh, sort of training ages and their, their rate of development um, is very different. Of course, um, someone who's trying to gain an extra pound of muscle to win Mr. Olympia, that extra fraction of muscle might be a different you know, there might be a different benefit to trying to achieve that than, say, the, the regular person. So, uh, but I mean, of course, there are, there are different scenarios here, isn't there, uh, uh, Kevin? And of course, whether we're looking at strength training or endurance training, I mean, how would you see the role and amount of protein for, say, endurance athletes as, as, as opposed to, say, uh, strength or physique athletes? I really think it's... Um... <coughs> If anybody's read anything I've written in the past few years, you'll see that I just think it's pretty silly to try to to try to make a number and say that this is the number for endurance athletes, and this is the number for strength athletes. I mean, first of all, you have to then you know shoehorn every athlete into one of those two categories. Which, if you're going to try that, then where does a where does a you know World Cup footballer go? Where does a, a rugby player go? Because uh, they do both. Then you have to try to say, you know, every endurance athlete is exactly the same. So are you telling me that a 1,500-meter runner and a, and a Tour de France cyclist are going to have the same? So I am a firm believer in that whereas it makes it tougher for dietitians and, and you know, sports uh, practitioners to, to try to recommend protein for their athletes, but a, a generalized number for all of some category of athletes is silly and you need to assess the individual needs for your athlete within the context of the energy requirements, uh, the time of the season, the time of the competition, um, you know, body size, etc., and, and training requirements there. So you can, I would start with like, I completely agree with Stu, you start somewhere between maybe one and a half to two, grams per kilo but 
how are you going to get up above two grams per kilo if you're if you're a 45 kilo gymnast? You know, it's going to be very very difficult. So, and and also or you know, is is one and a half going to be enough for someone who is consuming five thousand uh, calories a day? You're probably going to be above two just by not even trying to to get that much just by a normal protein intake of say 15-16% of your your energy. So I really think it's a mistake to say, hey, you're a weightlifter, you need 1.876.3 and you need, you know, 1.7 because you're an endurance athlete. Yeah, and I I completely agree with you and of course people forget you know, as much as some some of us do like to get into the rocket science and get out the charts and graphs and so on, we still need to be pragmatic about this, don't we, Stu? And and, and just be realistic. And of course, what what we see in the lab uh, and what we publish. I mean, ultimately, what we're publishing is means, of course. Uh, so the individual in question could be one of those outliers, anyway, and it could be a completely different scenario, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that we're beginning to appreciate is that, uh, you know, we, we report means, you're right, and um, there's a tremendous uh, inter-individual variability in, in these numbers, and so, you know, a lot of times it, it's hard to give, as Kevin said, an absolutely evidence-based answers, and all you can do is sort of pin your, if you, you know, people want a number, or they want something to aim at, and I think within a reasonable range, it's sort of like, it's above the minimum, it's in a, a reasonable zone and it comes, you know, it doesn't come close to some sort of tolerable upper limit beyond which there are maybe some adverse consequences. And I, and I don't know that that exists uh, uh, for protein. But, um, you know, it, within the numbers that we've been talking about, I think uh, prudence would sort of say is that, of course, you can find people that will do very well on, on quite low protein intakes and ostensibly quite poor quality for example vegan vegetarian athletes who uh you know what they're out there they're winning gold medals and so you know who are we to argue with what they're taking in um but there were other individuals who you know succeed on exceptionally high protein intakes and you know is it because of or in spite of what they do well we'll never really know but i, I agree with you 100 percent. it's context specific um but within the range of the numbers you've heard today i think you know, people can begin to sort of make their own mind up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, what they have to do is, is, is have a starting point, establish some baselines, like get their body composition assessed or checked, maybe look at performance, you know, how much you're lifting, how you feel, that sort of thing. And then come back to it a number of weeks later and see where you are and then make adjustments accordingly. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's the sensible way. So, okay, so let, let, let's talk a little bit um, about muscle protein synthesis itself because I think that's worth a, uh, a discussion. And there's sort of two angles here. Um, Kevin, if you could just briefly describe um, what's involved in muscle protein synthesis and then, and then Stu, I'm going to have you... Uh, discuss the you know the, the the role of protein intake and muscle protein synthesis and and how relevant the frequency of, of feedings and maybe touch into the leucine topic sure so, okay yeah uh, yeah muscle protein synthesis basically um, we you know when we teach it in the in the classroom at least I tend to start with transcription so you're you're transcribing the messenger RNA the information on the messenger RNA, sorry, the, the DNA to the messenger RNA, 
and then that messenger RNA is is tra transported out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm where it goes through translation. So you're translating the information on the messenger RNA to put the amino acids together to make the protein. Now, when we in the lab, when we measure muscle protein synthesis, we're measuring mostly the translation uh, of, of the messenger RNA to the protein. We're making proteins from, from uh, the amino acids. So you're putting amino acids together, making peptide bonds between them, and the, the, the order in which those amino acids are put together determines the, the type of protein, and then it goes through post-translational modifications, uh, which, which then allow it to be active and to do the function, whatever function it is, and, and also it has to then go to the part of the cell that it's going to be active uh, in, say if it's a mitochondrial protein it has to be transported back into the mitochondria for example yeah. so 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 that's sort of a, a, a basic uh, beginning of, of what muscle protein synthesis is yeah now that that's excellent and of course could you also just sort of uh, briefly describe how that is actually stimulated what I mean what is the catalyst for that process uh, I mean is it eating protein is it is it exercise you know is there a particular order there uh, and then we'll, we'll that'll segue nicely into stews well uh, certainly certainly um, increasing amino acid levels in the blood um, are somehow sensed by the muscle cells and that definitely stimulates muscle protein synthesis and you know we did studies back in the 90s, um, you know, showing, showing those sorts of things. Um, and also exercise clearly stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Um, both resistance exercise and endurance exercise, they are, are both capable of stimulating and, and increasing muscle protein synthesis. Um, and then, of course, the exercise will sensitize the muscle to uh, the amino acids that are coming in so that if you whenever you eat protein after exercise your muscle is is uh, going to be able to uh, increase synthesis more because it's it's uh, sensitized by by the previous exercise yeah no no excellent so Stu so so can you take it from there to um, you know the relevance of, of, of the frequency of feedings and and you know the the amount of protein maybe that you know that's required per feeding right um well the analogy i like to use is uh and, and you know pe some people who have obviously heard me uh, before would will, will have heard this before but i think it fits fairly well is that um if you imagine that your your muscle is a wall and protein synthesis is you know that's the guy at one end who's putting bricks into the wall and there's a guy at another at the other end of the wall who's taking you know bricks out that are ostensibly maybe they're a bit damaged maybe they need a little bit of fixing up or something like that and um, when you eat um, and amino acids go up in your blood what essentially that does is that delivers a, a load of bricks to the guy uh, who's building the wall. Um, but the bricks are different shapes, different sizes, and some of them he obviously needs. Um, those are the essential amino acids, or bricks in this case. But he's got another pile of all of these other bricks, which are just laying around. They're always there, but he can't build the wall um, without all the bricks. So there's, those are the amino acids. So 
Um, and what we like to sort of say is that there's one particular brick that he absolutely has to have, and that's the kind of brick that gives him a bit of a kick in the backside and says, time to go. And, and, and in muscle, that's leucine. It, it really fires up the, the process, and then it goes from there. Um, you know, so when you kind of view it from that perspective, you, you can begin to sort of, I, I think, put a lot of these things into a context that's a little bit easier to understand. So from that perspective... What we see is if you keep giving the guy bricks, if you sort of keep pushing them into the cells, so people have done this with amino acid infusions, for example, actually what happens is he just shuts off. It's almost as if the process is that he gets tired and says, well, I forget it, I'm not making any more bricks. So you can't keep eating all the time and expect for protein synthesis protein synthesis, excuse me, to, to keep on going, if you like. So the way this system kind of likes to work is you kind of have to pulse it. You, you sort of have to eat and then not eat. And then, you know, um, based on what we know to, to this point, which admittedly is probably not a lot, um, you can probably, I think, plan on eating about three to four times, at most, I think about five times a day, to get sort of an optimal response. You can eat six or seven, or you can say, oh, I eat all day, This is because that's better. Um, I actually don't believe that that's the case. I think that begins to look a lot more like when you keep putting the bricks into the system. And, and if you do that, sort of three to four meals a day, then you find you get a fairly optimal response. And the doses that we're talking about are the ones I mentioned earlier, so around 0.3 grams per kilogram per meal. Um, and that's sort of the, the conceptual model that, we, that we're working with right now. And, you know, as Kevin said, when you add exercise on top, that's kind of like giving the guy who, you know, uh, builds, builds the wall, it's like giving him a little bit extra caffeine or something. He works a little bit faster. He's more uh, apt to work. He's more sensitive. He's quicker, et cetera. And so the, the, the wall gets built a little bit um, faster and he actually works for a little bit longer. So I kind of like that analogy. It's sort of, you know, I mean, I know it's, uh, it's grossly simplifying a pretty complex process, but it tends to work. Oh, no, no I, th I think uh, uh, one of the problems we have in this industry, and it doesn't really matter what level you're at, is sometimes we overcomplicate issues. And of course, in that we lose the basic essence of, of what needs to be done in the real world. And uh, I think you explained that extremely well. And, and, and I'm going to, uh, Lee Breen uh, will be on this podcast in, um, in the not too distant future where he's going to be discussing um, protein and aging, of course, but also uh, the leucine threshold. And we'll get into the, the meat of that because, of course, we, we just don't have time to, to get into everything in this particular podcast. But um, as you were discussing that, uh, Stu, um, you know, we, we obviously we, we've discussed the amount of protein. We've discussed um, the frequency of feeding. So, you know, somewhere between three and five feeds today. But, but what about Kevin? What about the actual quality of the protein? I mean, is any kind of protein going to work here, or is there a you know, when we talk about high biological value proteins, or you know, is it animal protein? Is it plant protein? Is there any particular uh, sort of issue with proteins that we should be aware of? Well, it, you know, to answer one of your questions is, will any protein do it? Well, um, yeah, to some extent, uh, any protein will work. As Stu alluded to earlier, you know, vegans do gain muscle mass, etc. 
So it, yeah, any protein is is going to do it. You're going to increase the amount of essential amino acids in the blood that can be used to build your wall. As as I, I really like Stu's analogy there. Um, there there is evidence that that there are sort of different uh, responses of muscle protein senses to different proteins. And and Stu probably should be the one to answer this since it's most uh, most of that work, at least a lot of it's coming out of coming out of his lab. Uh, you know, for example, Jason Tang's paper that showed that uh, whey protein, you know, you get a better response with whey protein than than casein or soy following exercise. So so there are some uh, some differences. Now my guess would be that those sorts of differences are probably going to be most important at the at the margins. Uh, so for most people who are going to the gym uh, and you know lifting weights to be healthy and to look good at the beach or whatever, um, probably not going to make a huge difference. Uh, you know how much of each of these various proteins are getting, um, but for older people, as I'm sure Lee will tell you. Uh, and and Stu will back up, or or very the very highest athletes. Then maybe that's where you start thinking about sort of uh, the the different types of proteins. Now, uh, that being said, it it you know I get asked all the time. Well, what about this protein compared to that protein? We've only just started comparing these different proteins, and they've not all been compared, and so uh, it's hard to say. The, the things that seem to be important, or as Stu said, was the, the amount of leucine, and you know, if Lee's going to get into the leucine, leucine threshold issue, but also, also how quickly um, the amino acid levels, and especially the the essential amino acid levels rise in the blood, seems to also be a factor. So that's probably why whey protein has, uh, at least so far, been one of the ones that gives us the best response. So there are differences, but. I think for most people who are listening to your podcast, it probably is not a, a, a an incredibly important factor. Uh, would be my yeah my yeah. my take on that. Yeah, no, I and I'm really pleased you said that because it is interesting, particularly from both regular clients and athletes that I talk to. I mean, they they literally get into a panic uh, when they start to think about whether or not they've eaten enough protein, whether or not. Uh, they've had the right kinds of protein, and of course, if, if marketing um, had its way, it would have you believe that you know you have to have the highest quality protein sources, you know, with the super magic uh, sort of uh, you know uh, m- magic dosing and this, that, and the other. And it and it's just you know in reality, it just isn't that isn't the case. We have a a big problem with dogmatism in the health and fitness industry, and of course, it can be taken really out of out of context so Stu let, let I mean that brings us into an interesting topic which of course is this whole sort of anabolic window um, and I've certainly seen people in in my local gym um, who are uh, you know sort of going out of their way to have their protein shakes and their post-workout recoveries before they even hit the shower because they're sort of um, worrying that their muscles are going to drop off if they don't have their protein carb dose um, immediately after putting the weights down. I mean, how, you know, what, what's what's the real science behind that? Yeah, I, I think that that's um, it, it's an example of um, you know a concept that's been around for a, a lot of years now, and 
you know, Kevin and I have, uh, you know, we're, we're old enough, we've, we've seen this enough uh, to say that it probably originated with some studies looking at uh, carbohydrate replenishment a, a number of years ago. In other words, that there are sort of two phases to, to restoring carbohydrate after exercise, a very early rapid phase uh, and then a later phase. And there are a lot of studies done on, you know, how quickly can we re restore muscle glycogen so athletes can perform. Um, and it really sort of came down when you really boiled it down is that if you were doing, say, two workouts a day, then maybe it was a critically important factor. If you were doing one workout a day and or maybe one workout every two days, as some of your clients might be, then the importance of this sort of glycogen restoration window slipped off dramatically. Um, and then it got extended to the, the kind of the protein concept. And there was one study that sort of really fired everybody up. And it was done in older people um, out of Denmark. And it showed that um, older men who were resistance training who didn't get a protein supplement with, within two hours of uh, stopping working out actually didn't gain any muscle protein mass. Or, uh, and it actually compromised their strength gains as well. And so that really sort of got extended and absolutely, I think, uh, and Kevin would probably agree, kind of made everybody go, oh, my God, there's this magic window, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so here we are sort of 10 years on from that study being published. And now that there are a, a number of other uh, studies that have sort of been done um, doing that. And, and I'm just going to um, give, give a quick shout out to, to two people here, uh, Brad Schoenfeld and Aaron Aragon, who have done a, a pretty nice job um, in looking at this post-exercise anabolic window. Uh, and in the journal, the, the journal of the International Society for Sport Nutrition, have done a, a meta-analysis actually, and um, a, a, along with Jim Krieger, I should I should mention as well. And, and the bottom line, and, and here's the evidence-based answer to that. And okay, it's means and everything else like that. Is that the effect is if it's there, it's remarkably small. Um, if it's there at all, even. Uh, so I think the, the sort of the the ethos of what I try to say is, you know. Worrying about whether you're getting your protein before you hit the shower is uh, a pretty ridiculous notion. Get some protein, um, you know, in the post-exercise period. But if it's an hour later, I'm not too bent about it. I think that there are some pragmatic advice you can give to athletes, you know, definitely rehydrate, definitely refuel, and get some protein into the system. But the timing's not crucial. Um, so I think that's a great um, industry sell job on the timing aspect of things. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think when it comes right down to it, it's a pretty small effect. And as Kevin said, as you begin to move up the ladder and the margins are smaller, then maybe these things begin to make a difference. But uh, for the average, uh, the, the mere mortals going to the gym looking to put on a bit of muscle, uh, I, I don't think it's a big deal. Yeah, no, no, some good points there. And uh, I'm pleased to say uh, I've also got Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld uh, in about two weeks on that very paper and topic. Well, uh, well I'm sorry if I stole some of their thunder <laughs> there, but, it, but no. it is, it's, um, I think it's one of the better papers that's done out yeah. there. And, um, you know, uh, it's one that I point people to and say, you know, it's pretty damn small, guys. So, yeah, no, I, you know, I the, the thing about that study that you mentioned, the Danish study, that, that, puzzled me when it first came out and everybody started jumping on this this two-hour window bandwagon and, and of course books got written about the timing and so it just it just blew up but the thing about that study was that the group 
that didn't get protein and, and it was it was a meal until two hours after the exercise, they not only didn't do as well as the other group that got immediate protein, it absolutely obliterated any increases that they got with resistance exercise training. And to my knowledge, that's the only time I've ever seen a study where there were no gains at all. So it not only didn't do as well, it actually completely wiped out what would be a normal response in any study you've ever seen, even without any kind of dietary control. So I just could not understand how that happened uh, in, in that study. So it, it just seems so strange that everybody based this whole entire uh, sort of concept of what you're supposed to do with protein after exercise on that study when it seemed to have this incredibly big, if not flaw, at least question mark about what, what was happening there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point, Kevin. In fact, it's, it's, it, it is surprising how much uh, science is badly interpreted and how much bad science there actually is out there. Just because something got published, it, does, you know, it doesn't mean that it's good science. So, um, so well, look, guys, uh, I, I think we'll wrap it up there because we're already out of time. Um, clearly, we could go on for hours and hours and perhaps we'll, we'll get you back uh, on on to maybe some more specific topics but I'd like to thank you both for, for your time so thank you Stu and thank you Kevin it's been great to have you sharing some of your knowledge I know we could go on for hours and of course some of the areas that we've touched into we will come back to with some other guests over forthcoming podcasts so um, yeah thanks guys my pleasure thanks for having me yeah thanks very much Okay, guys, so that's the end of episode five of the We Do Science podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information. You can learn more about forthcoming uh, podcasts at guruperformance.com and, of course, on iTunes and, of course, some of the other things that we're up to, particularly the um, sort of educational, uh, professional education programs that we provide, which features wonderful lecturers such as Kevin and Stu. Um, and again, you can learn about that at guruperformance.com. So thank you for your time and take care. I'm Laurent Bannock.